So are we just going to wing it today and make up a podcast with not a single note or topic written Correct. down? Wow. I've done nothing. Wow. I feel really anxious. I don't like to live dangerously like that. Well, it's just that there's all these people come up with pleading eyes and say, why so irregularly? And I say, well, very busy. But then all of a sudden now, not so busy. So yeah. I feel perhaps that you've got to pay it forward and just <laughs> maybe just commit to a recording device, 30 <laughs> minutes of utter bollocks. And if this is utter no bollocks, you've only on. got yourself to blame, yeah, listeners, yes. for the pressure, the relentless pressure you apply to us. Um, Although okay. I see from your your carefully placed library book on the... T- what, are, are Why you, do you having an affair mocking? with a librarian or something? Every time you, you keep coming up with things in... Contact with yes. obvious library badges. I am, in fact, her name is Kathy. Yeah. My friend Kathy, who is a librarian. She's a foxy librarian. She keeps me in library books. Um, this book I started reading last night. It's called Beyond Coincidence by Martin Plimmer and Brian King, and I was laughing aloud because. Look, it's just so interesting, and I love a great coincidence as much as the next person. These guys are sort of philosophers and mathematicians, and so they're going to unpack co- stuff that we think is meaningful and, and like, wow, the ha- that's such an incredible coincidence. There has to be meaning. Often there are very clear mathematical explanations for things. But um, human beings love coincidence because mm. we love to understand the world by trying to find meaning in it because basically mm. the world is very chaotic and random and so mm. a coincidence... Hence the fad diet movement. <laughs> exactly. A coincidence allows us to think, oh, aha, uh-huh, there is actual meaning. Anyway, I was laughing last night at, I mean... There's some of just silly coincidences. Like there was one that they were talking about where it was a guy who was bitten by a dog. Mm. He presented at hospital. He's treated by Dr. Bassett. <laughs> and then the policeman arrives to take a statement and the policeman's name is Constable Barker. <laughs> <laughs> so just like made silly. it into print. Yes. Just silly, like ridiculous ones like that. But probably the what most... What an adorable person you must be to live with. You're like... What's up, darling? Oh, oh, it's very droll. I'm just reading Beyond Coincidence by Martin Plimmer and Brian King. It's a library copy. And then, oh, the, the most droll story about a, a constable bar. Honestly, really. I mean, you must read it, darling. It's fabulous, fabulous. Hey, the pro- just excuse me, just before you um, bring to an end this interruption of mine, isn't you folding down these pages? Yes, it is. You dirtbag. <laughs> Are you not a page folder? I am in a book that I don't care about. So if if it's a book that um, I know I'm going to chuck, which is hardly any books at all, or that's been mine forever and I know I'm not going to pass it on, it's a really old copy... I would never fold down the page of a library book. You Let me guess, you use a, a bookmark that you've stitched together yourself from fabric scraps. No, I use one that I've flayed <laughs> from the hide of the most recent book folder I've come across. It's just like, you may as well just wee of it. That's the a, a level of respect that you're showing for public property there. That's a disgrace. Just give it back to me. <laughs> I want to keep telling my anecdotes. I know, but I feel like you don't deserve the airspace, are you? We just had a meeting with someone who described (laughs) us as having a slightly competitive edge to our relationship, and I was surprised by that. I wouldn't describe it as competitive. What do you think it is? Contemptuous. (laughs) I just, how can you do that? This this is an old I think of a C word in relation to you too, but it's not contemptuous (laughs) or competitive. Oh, they published in 2003. This book's been around for... I got that up. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years. Thirteen years. Um, and 
It was fun until it ran into you. Basically. Now, it actually is a pretty good nick, isn't it? Now, it um, there are some very, very famous coincidences in the world. One is that one about uh, Pink Floyd's album Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz. You must have heard about that. That if you play Dark Side of the Moon, you started at the third roar of the MGM Lion, that mm. there's this bizarre level of interrelationship between the album and the movie that apparently really? is coincidence. I, yeah, so backwards or forwards? So when it always, um, I've just filed it with one of those playing records. Forwards. No, things. it's yeah. you play it forwards. And so, um, for example, as the films, the moment the film switches to colour, um, the tune "Money" comes on oh, on right. the album. Um, oh, okay. And so there's all these weird lyrics come up that match. Yeah, supposedly completely unintentional. And so people have. Um, played it, you know, endlessly and written them down. It's actually quite compelling. Probably the world's most famous series of coincidences is around the assassinations of Lincoln and Kennedy. Have you right. heard this? I'm just going to read it because it really is quite something. Lincoln was elected president in 1860. Exactly 100 years later, in 1960, Kennedy was elected mm -hmm. president. Both men were involved in civil rights. Both were assassinated on a Friday in the presence of their wives. Both men were killed by a bullet that entered the head from behind. Lincoln was killed in Ford's theatre. Kennedy met his death while riding in a Lincoln convertible made by the Ford Motor Company. Both men were succeeded by vice presidents named Johnson, who were Southern Democrats and former senators. Andrew Johnson was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908, exactly 100 God, years later. Freaky. Assassin John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839. Assassin Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939, 100 years later. Both, both assassins were southerners. Both were murdered before they could be brought to trial. Booth shot Lincoln in a theatre and fled to a barn. Oswald shot Kennedy from a warehouse and fled to a theatre. God, that's exactly right. It's unbelievable. So, um, yeah, and so it's um, that is probably the most famous, um, you know. I've never heard that spelled out before. Now I want to it's borrow that It's pretty much in every single book about coincidence they'll, oh, really? they'll cite. You know, well, I've one. not read a single one of those books. But coincidence so, <laughs> or design. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is actually the funny thing too. The authors say, you know how sometimes when you're writing a story about something, everywhere you look, yeah. you start seeing things related yeah. to it or you hear a word you've never heard before and it's just everywhere you think, how did I never see this word before? They talk about the same thing once you're writing a book about coincidence that, you know, you bump into someone on a train and they happen to be a mathematical expert on probability and coincidence. And, um, there's a funny anecdote where they say Martin Plimmer, who has no interest in cars, they've been down in Cambridge mm. researching something and they go to have a cup of tea in a cafe and they're sitting in the window and Martin Plimmer, uh, no interest in cars, happens to say, oh, God, I just saw this car. It was the most beautiful car I've ever seen. I even noted what type of car it was mm. because it was just so beautiful to me and it was an Audi. And his colleague Brian King said... Um, so, for example, do you think at some point you might like to buy one and own an Audi for yourself? And Martin Plummer says, yes, I'd love to. And Brian says, well, I know just the place. Look out the window. He turns looks out the window and over the road is a car yard called Martin's Audi. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's full of just silliness like that and it's just ridiculously interesting. I need to... Are you okay? <laughs> you keep <laughs> asking me this. <laughs> the second week in a row where you showed up with some library book about you know meaning and finding a deeper meaning in life and last one was about concentration camps i know i'm working on a little project about oh, which okay. i don't want to say anymore but okay. i'm just it's making me read some super super interesting wow. stuff all yeah. right what do you, now you've been on holiday so did you I read have. anything while you're away yeah i did although it was quite an active sporting <laughs> right i went skiing because when i think of you i oh, do think active yeah. sporting yeah uh yeah so i've paid my debt to the Active holiday gods. Now I'm just sort of home, relaxing with a cup of tea and being 
terribly, terribly grateful for the chance to cook and read again. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm very lucky to go on a skiing holiday, so it was uh, <clears throat> awesome. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, look, so I read a couple of things while I was away. I read um, a great novel by Anne Patchett. It's a new one called Commonwealth. It's on my list for my holidays, yeah. It's really good. Mm, okay. It's great. Now, What's I'd, it about? I haven't read anything by Anne Patchett, but she's won lots of prizes and, you know, I've one of those people Bel where Canto. you pick up. Yeah, Bel Canto. Yeah. Um, being, I think, probably the most famous, I think. But mm. I, this happens to me all the time. Like, I read a lot, and I'm constantly picking up a book that's like the fourth book by the most famous, you know, compelling new voice in English <laughs> literature. And you think, oh, God damn it, I think I'm paying attention. And then all these kind of really big fish kind of sneak past. Um, so it's about uh, a family that's kind of a blended family. Um, there's a... Um, uh, man and a woman who meet at a party and fall violently in love and um, the woman has two children and the man has four children and they leave their respective partners and um, this sort of strange band of stepchildren is sort of thereby established. Mm, that sounds idyllic. <laughs> well, you know, um, the mother is this consternatingly beautiful woman and the the marriage sort of doesn't really work out, but the story is about these, this strange dynamic that evolves between these six children and how they change over their lives, and there is a tragedy that has, um, you know, an effect on all of them, obviously. Yeah, and good. the great thing is that it's just, it's intelligently written about children and, um, and young adults, how clinical that sounds, but... Um, the writing is beautiful. It's it's very it's a bit unearthly and very compelling. And I loved it. You know, yeah, um, okay. the first twenty pages, I thought, oh, am I going to like this? And then I really liked it cool. a lot. Excellent. Okay. And what was the other one that you read? You said oh, two. Well, um, I also read a John Grisham novel because oh, yeah. I found it on a bookstall and um, it cost two dollars, which I thought was an excellent investment. And I remember there was like I I once was on holiday somewhere or I found on a plane a copy of a John Grisham book called The Firm. Oh, yeah. It then became... Yeah, Tom Cruise film. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed reading that. And I thought, well, I haven't read many John Grisham novels, but they're massively successful mm -hmm. and they're kind of pacey kind of things. And so I read this one. It was called The Street Lawyer. Oh, yeah. And it's fine. It's, it was... Uh, I read it on the plane. Good holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but that, now my nine-year-old daughter has decided that she's going to start reading it. So I'm now pleased that I've read it because there, there is no sexy bits in it. So it's <laughs> but there's lots of sort of antitrust law kind of things. So I'm not quite sure how she'll get, you know, uh, get, get through it. But there you go. Um, but the other thing that I did on the plane um, was that I uh, watched Sherpa. Now, obviously, I watched it on the way home from skiing because oh, yeah, uh, okay. watching Sherpa, which is about a terrible mountaintop debacle. Do you remember our, my producer, Julia Holman, begged us to watch I that? I do, yeah. yeah. And I watched, actually, I remember um, the first ten minutes of it, and I watched, I tried to, I watched it in bed on a laptop, which was uh, just the most catastrophically foolish move because of course I was asleep before anything happened but I right. was I was able to register that it was beautifully shot and um, it's a documentary and the the crew um, set out to um, film the 2014 
at Mount Everest climbing season mm -hmm. and it was going to be a documentary about the life of Sherpas because the previous year there'd been this um, argument on at base camp between this ever-swelling group of um, affluent Western climbers wanting to conquer Everest. And mm -hmm. it was just about the time that people started to wake up to just how sort of overexploited Everest is and how many hundreds of people go up there and um, the levels of comfort that they expect, not mm. like, you know, Hillary and Tenzing Norgay just sort of mm. taking a pack of the crackers and mm. um, some warm shoes and hiking up there mm. under their own steam. You know, base camp is full of these sort of incredible tents and lovely meals and... Um, furniture and books mm. and all of this stuff that has to be carried up there and back again by Sherpas. And the interesting thing about um, that this film turned into was that it turned into effectively uh, a film about an industrial dispute. Because what happens um, when they've got to base camp, um, the documentary team is filming with this one expedition um, sort of group, and there's dozens of them mm. um, making their way up the mountain. And um, the Sherpas, whose main source of income every year this expedition is, have to not only haul everything, you know, mini fridges and bloody tents and everything up to base camp, but they also have to prepare the route up to the summit. Um, and there's a particularly perilous bit of the climb called the Icefall, mm -hmm. which is like this waterfall of ice that becomes a bit stable at night but it is famously unstable during the day and it's the only way you can get up to the summit is to cross it and it's highly dangerous where everybody dies um, because bits of ice just fall on you and right. the whole thing goes crashing down or whatever. Anyway, um, someone who is uh, with a team that is trying to get to the summit as a, um, as a western climber will, will cross that ice fall twice, once on the way up, once on the way down. But the, the Sherpas will cross it up to 20 times on that trip because they're carrying stuff up and down to the next camp mm. and to the you know, ladders and they're making paths for the other climbers to follow. So it's incredibly risky. And what happens in this film is that um, a bunch of Sherpas go up to do this um, advance work and a, a massive, massive chunk of ice comes crashing down and kills about a dozen of them. And it's the greatest single mm. accident. And all of a sudden, all of these existing tensions about the expectations of what Sherpas are and what they do, they're these sort of like lovely, smiling people who undertake these incredibly dangerous jobs for comparatively no pay. I mean, mm. um, compared to what a, um, a Western expeditioner will pay to, mm. to undergo that experience, maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars, mm. um, the Sherpa will get five grand or something. So it's so they they come back down, they retrieve their dead, and they have this industrial meeting, and they decide they don't want to go, that, that they're all walking off the job. Wow. And what happens uh, is really quite intense, and mm. it's fascinating to watch. And you are watching a movie about a climb, where there's actually no climbing because they are arguing. Wow. And in the course of it, you, you learn a lot about how that dynamic works. It's really, it's really fascinating. You might be able to answer this question mm. for me because it's always puzzled me. So you see stories about, you know, so-and-so is now um, the first person to get to climb this mountain or the youngest or whatever. Yeah. But I've always thought that they've got a Sherpa with them. <laughs> like, I don't really get the... Um, 
given that the Sherpas do it all the time, why is there ever a big deal about any Western expeditioner going there and doing it? I, I don't actually understand it. Well, this was apparently, I mean, they, they cover this a little bit in the movie as well. There was a bit of a, um, a drama when Hillary mm. and Tenzing first reached the summit because there was a question about who actually stepped on the summit first. Right. And I think it was actually Norgay. Right. He, and he got a sort of a lesser decoration, but Hillary was the champion. You Why? Know? Because they are the people with the coverage, right? They're the people on whose um, figures the world's attention um, is fixed. Yeah. It's this historical anomaly. And one of the points this film makes is that since um, the advent of social media and the fact that... Um, that um, Sherpas as an ethnic group are no longer necessarily bound by their geography in the way that they were, mm. they have started to understand just how mm. significant the feat of climbing, Ever of climbing Everest is in the eyes of the world and just how absent they have been from that, yeah. from that achievement, right? And it is this incredible um, asymmetry. And the fascinating thing about this film is watching all of these climbers, who all of whom have paid heaps of money to be there. Mm. So they really want to get to that summit, and they are assuming that the Sherpas will continue to play their historical role. And you've got these Sherpas who are a bit like, no thanks, actually, mm. 12 of my buddies just died, my wife is giving me a really hard time about keeping coming up this mountain. I think I'm not in the mood anymore. Carrying your stuff. Right, carrying your stuff. Yeah. And they're like, well, that's your thing, right? To get paid $5,000 to take 20 times the amount of risk as me. You know, that's, that's, the, that's it, the deal. It, it's it really interesting. Yeah. One but, of the... Sorry, you go. You, no, you go. And one of the uh, most interesting and yet sort of confronting public events I've done was a writers' festival where I was on a panel with Lincoln Hall, um, who I think has now uh, died. He was a, probably oh, Australia's climber, most successful yeah, yeah. mountain climber. And um, he had survived incredible stuff and lost multiple fingers and, and had huge injuries and various things. And he was talking about why did he do it and why did he keep doing it? And there was a certain point where he said his, his own children had begged him to stop doing it and he still just kept doing it. And I couldn't... I felt like it was like listening to someone from another planet. I could yeah. not understand anything that he was saying. It's like watching The Revenant. You're just like, unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. Yeah, it was, it was confounding. I could not interesting? get any grip on where he was coming from. And he probably thought I was a moron as well, but I, I just couldn't. <laughs> everything he said, I just thought, why? But if you think about it, I suppose, and, and we had Cheryl Bart, you know, on the ABC board who has just climbed every peak Available, mm. and she's like this incredible powerhouse, and is one of those people. Like, I'm going to collect the seven great peaks, and I'm going to also climb them one-legged, just you know, for fun. Um, there is something that is so, I'm not saying it's simple because it's really hard to do, but there's something so elemental about a mountain peak. You know, you know where it is; it never moves. It is the same all mm. the time. It is a really ancient sort of physical challenge. It's hard. It involves a huge amount of training, but as a feat, it is uncomplicated, you know? You know mm. where this mountain is and you know how high the top of it is and mm. to get there involves X amount of um, training and and, uh, um, and organisation, whatever, but it is such a binary enterprise. Success or failure is so simple to detect. Mm. And I th often think that 
and, and in this film there are all of these business people and they make the point that whereas uh, in the old days climbers would put up with all sorts of levels of privation because they were there to climb it, you know, they, they've got this whole new breed of business people who are doing it as a, a sort of a, a thrill or as a team building thing or, you know, um, and who also expect greater levels of comfort as well. Right. They expect there to be a tent all set up when they get there to base camp and, and the next and... camp and the next camp after that. I mean, they, there's this great scene where um, dawn breaks over base camp and there's a couple of Sherpas wandering around with a sort of a bucket of um, a sort of a, a, a thermos and they've got hot towels in there and they're unzipping people's tents and, and, and tonging in hot towels so that people can get a nice fresh face wash right. with a hot towel first thing in the morning, you know, on Mount Everest. But I often think that, I think that maybe for business people who are really elite business people who are absolutely consumed in their day jobs by complicated issues of risk and reward and success and failure like you know if you if you take over a company and it kind of does okay but it's messy and you lose lots of staff or you make kind of a profit but it's all complicated whereas mm. there's something so simple about a mountain yeah and did you get to the top of it or didn't you, you know? well I was talking to somebody the other day about surfing and um, this person's husband had been a mad keen surfer and um, was he liked he had a very busy job and so he found that surfing really cleared his brain because there's certain things with surfing like you can't make waves come you have to sit yeah. out there for a fair bit of time yeah. waiting and just watching and observing and so it's actually quite um so there's el that element of not having control that's right not having control and forcing you out of your, your yeah. busy brain and whatnot hey um something that we both watched a while ago but we haven't yet can i just yes. before we move on from that just say yes, that one of the I would say one of the greatest books on mountain climbing I've ever read, but it's probably the only one, um, is by John Krakauer. Oh, yeah, Into Thin Air. Um, Into Thin Air. And, Fantastic. of course, it, um, it, it sort of then became a film, didn't it, called mm. Touching the Void, mm. which is also fabulous. But it is the most gripping drama, and it is um, a true story of an expedition um, to climb Everest that goes horribly wrong. It is just bewitchingly gripping mm. to read, and John Krakauer is such a great um, uh, essayist, yeah. yeah. And he writes true stories with uh, such conviction and commitment that it is. I've, I've read it several times, mm. and it is just an extraordinary book. He he's, he wrote a book about Mormons as well. Have you read that one? Oh, I haven't read that one. Um, I read one that was a Kindle single that was one of the most successful early Kindle singles um, singles called. Um, Three Cups of Kindness, I think. Okay. And it's about a, um, a guy who runs a charity for, um, you know, Nepali orphans or something, and it's actually a massive scam. And, and, this, and it's the story of Krakauer right. getting involved with him and then discovering that it's all... Oh, it's a scam. Yeah, it's a, it's oh, so good. Okay. It's really good. Must but what's the one about um, Mormons? Because um, I would love to read I that. forget what it's called, but it's the same style of... Um, Immersion journalism, which is like you fully immerse in something, and then you write a um, oh. you write a, a non-fiction book, but it almost reads like a novel. Um, okay, I'm now just I'm just doing a search on John Krakow Mormons. There's a oh, bugger off ABC Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> there's a hang on, I'll oh search. God, Why don't I search while we talk about the next thing, which is yeah. um, a film called Under Another, the Banner of Heaven. Under the Banner of Heaven, yes. Oh yeah, I actually have this on my um, e-reader and. 
I'm, I'm kind of about maybe 50 pages into it, and right. I haven't quite... I, I put it down, right. so maybe I've got to start reading Have it again. again it's worth it. a block of time. Documentaries. We watched yeah. one called Wiener. <gasps> I find it hard to believe that we've not discussed this It's just because yet. we watched it. It was actually... So the Sydney Film Festival um, provided me with a link to be able to watch this documentary, Wiener, which I watched and was just so blown away that I immediately sent it to Crab. And it was at the height of election season. We were really busy. But I think I'd banged on so much that it was about 10pm in the evening and you went, OK, yeah. I'm going to watch it right now. So... Um, Anthony oh. Weiner is was um, a congressman in the United States from New York, and he got in trouble because he was busted tweeting photos of his tackle to somebody who was not his wife. A sophomore in, like, Illinois or something. Yep. And his wife uh, is a, a very high-profile staffer for Hillary Clinton. Her name's Huma Abedin. And uh, he then decided that and he, had, he was forced to quit his job as a congressman. Now, everybody remembers this story because, not just because he sort of joined the ranks of American congressmen doing stupid things with their wedding tackle, but... His name is Wiener. Like Wiener, the worst exactly. Possible and so the, you'd have to just have it chopped off, I think. And so the New York Post, like just uh, the weeks over which this scandal played out, it was like Wiener exposed. And then when he's refusing to quit, Wiener, I'll stick it out. <laughs> Obama Wiener stands tall. <laughs> Obama, Obama at one point does an interview where he says, "Well, if it were me, I would quit." And so New York Post, Obama beats Wiener. <laughs> It's just like nonstop. Um, anyway, it's like the uh, New York Post actually just commissioned and built that guy out of spare body parts. They just must have like cried with gratitude. <laughs> anyway, so Wiener, um, Wiener decides to redeem himself. He's going to after the scandal has broken that he's going to run for New York mayor. And so the documentary makers have full fly on the wall access to the campaign when he's running for New York mayor. Um, I'm just shaking my head because I just. It's what just, makes you make that decision? And Wiener is, I mean, it's hard to put it into words because he was just such an extraordinary character. It's more than that, though. It's, it's that the, the film itself is probably the most kind of compelling and bizarrely triumphant exploration of the genre of documentary because like if you're making a documentary about a high profile person i.e. a person with things to lose right i mean everyone's got something to lose but i mean you know high stakes yeah the only way that it really works is if, if that person just gives themselves over to you in a way that could just imperil them hugely like a great documentary is one where someone either just burns themselves up in front of your camera or something really strange happens. Right? Yeah. And it's kind of a little from column A and a little from column B. Yeah, Because halfway is, through making the documentary, it turns out that he's texted his wing-wong to somebody else. You know, like Using the pseudonym Carlos Danger. Carlos Danger. I mean, like, and it's at this point, I remember, I remember when this thing when the Carlos Danger texts emerged, it was like Jon Stewart from The Daily Show was actually kissing the floor. Yeah. Like, actually, it was, it, was, um, it was actually Colbert who did better with it because he had this theme music written for Carlos Danger <laughs> and he'd just play it every time Wiener popped up, so to speak, which was about every 30 seconds. But the great thing about... So you remember all of that. It's impossible not to 
have at least vestigial recollections of, of that bizarre series of events. Man, halfway through his run at the New York mayoralty, suddenly gets involved Named in Wiener. another, another big wave of controversy. Like, what? But also, he's married to this woman who is the closest advisor to Hillary Clinton and still is. And this documentary is now airing halfway through the campaign that Hillary Clinton's running. And the thing that is the most unusual thing about this film is that clearly the principal protagonists are not sure where it's going or what where it's going to end up. Like it's a genuine insight into where they are. And he is so addicted to attention oh. and to being on camera that he's happy for the camera to remain there, even at the moment where the whole news breaks about and the, the wife just, danger thing. And the wife learns it on camera. And at that point, they don't even really ask for the cameras to leave. The like, other bit that I found just astonishing that you would allow to be filmed was when he is, um, he's practising a speech um, to say, I think it's after the Carlos Danger revelation, and he says, and for this I'm profoundly sorry, he's practising his speech. He practises variations of emphasis. And for that I am sorry. profoundly sorry. And for that I am profoundly sorry. He practises it on camera. like the. No, there's a worse moment than that, and that is... On the day that he goes to vote, it's clearly a debacle. His wife is really stricken. And the other thing that we should mention about this film is that she is so beautiful that her beauty, it's like a character all its own in this film. She is unbelievable. So, and she's really clever, so much cleverer than him, obviously, but less A-type in mm. her personality. But you do just want to kind of rescue her. I want to fly over there, get her. <laughs> I know. And I think she's one of the most hard-headed women in the world, right? Like, I she's know. really smart. We were both she's... saying to each other straight away, where are her mates? Where are her mates? Saying, don't be in this film, don't be with that guy, don't, you know, don't do any of this. But there's this moment where he sort of says, um, he, he tries to get her to come along to the function, to some function where the, the woman, like, who's some sort of low-level porn star that he's been texting pictures of his tackle to is actually waiting at the function and he's trying to get his wife to come along she just says no nah, I just don't think it's a really good idea that's right that's why you're the head of strategy yeah. for Hillary Clinton you know that that's not a good idea um and then he tries to get her to turn up when he votes and there's a massive crush there and she says look I'm just not coming you know it's just there's nothing in it for either of us I'm just not coming and so on the walk to the place where he's going to cast his vote, he's got their kid in a pusher and he's on the phone to his advisor talking about how he's going to spin it, that she's not there. And he goes through all these different potential alibis and then he perfects the lie that he's going to tell, which is that she's had some family issue. And he just boldly then tells it down the news cameras. <laughs> it was just... Look, yeah. it was... There were that many layers to it about, like, it, their relationship, her, the fact, the weird parallels with Bill Clinton and the fact that she's tied with Hillary Clinton, yeah. um, just his Both own with person. With waving husbands that just, you know. His personality just and the degree of attention-seeking and where does that, what is motivating this guy. Yeah. But also just the other thing I found really interesting about it was just as a commentary on politics and the media in this sort of 24-7 age that we're living in and where, you know, we live in an age now where 
taking a photograph of yourself in a mirror and mm. posting it online is not considered a sign of narcissist, narcissistic personality disorder. Mm. It's considered a sign of great brand management. Yeah. Um, and so really the question, it's becoming where the only thing that you can't survive in politics is becoming an object of ridicule. Mm. And that's where Wiener came undone because he became an object of mm. ridicule. Um, otherwise, really the only questions are how much gumption do you have to keep sucking up public humiliation and claiming that you've done nothing wrong or saying sorry, um, groveling for, um, you know, for forgiveness, attempting to reinvent yourself. And for someone like Wiener, the answer to that question was endless appetite. Yeah. Uh, and every person who ever saw him in the street and said, you know, you got some balls, Anthony, or whatever, um, it just fueled the narcissism. Yeah. But, but also... We're making him sound maybe a little one-dimensional because the reality is when you're watching the film, this is a guy with some pretty good political skills. Mm, like there's a mm. scene where he goes after the first or the second, I can't remember, scandal, and he goes to a quite hostile room mm. and after he speaks, yeah. this bloke says, I'm going to address a big belly in New York, I'm going to address the elephant in the room here, Anthony, you know, you're a person of little character, blah, blah, just berates him. Mm. And then Wiener does this sort of off-the-cuff speech about how um, everyone deserves a chance to try to make amends and to improve themselves. And he delivers it really amazingly. And at the end, the whole room, like, yeah. just bursts into applause. He turned the room around in one answer. Um, and he sort of had this, like, for such an unbelievably selfish um, person and narcissist, he did have a sort of scrappy likability. Like, he was just like this, you just sort of punch... He's like one of those things that, you know, you punch him to the ground and they yeah. just bounce straight back up again. And he also had this kind of facile ability to spot an opportunity and absolutely hone in on it. Like, I was thinking about him actually when I saw Sam Dastiari on um, Q&A the other night in that face-off with Pauline Hans, and it was such an interesting interaction because... And the context of it is, like, here's Hanson with these racist views and here's this Iranian guy who came here as a migrant at five. I mean, it's sort of television genius to have those two people sitting next to each other. But also there was a funny exchange that was going on because um, he was sort of speaking for Muslims, basically. And she kept saying to him, well, are you a Muslim? Are you a Muslim? I didn't know that. And people were laughing because they were thinking, well, you're an idiot, you know, what dumb question. But actually it's quite a smart question because Dastyari isn't a Muslim. He fled Iran with his parents who are atheists because of the depredations that they suffered right. under that regime. So, um, but, but nevertheless, he kept avoiding that question because the point that he was prosecuting was about um, the right to be a Muslim in Australia, right. even though he's not, right? Right. So it was just sort of fascinating, and he, he did it in a really kind of um, engaging way. And, and Wien is a bit like that too. Um, he spots the point that's being made mm. and removes it from the context and just bores in on that point. There's a great bit in the um, film where he's talking about the first responders legislation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in the US Congress, they're constantly hitching issues to each other. And so they create lots of ammunition against each other because they'll say, you voted against this bill that increased aid to first responders from 9-11 who were injured. You know, you heartless asshole. But actually, like, that clause will have been tacked on to another big bill to create political pressure to pass something totally unrelated that, mm. it's, that it's stapled to. It'll be like some, you know, yeah, something about... Housing affordability or, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this great bit where 
that's put in context and then you see Wiener's response to it, which is to walk up to this lectern and to just bore in on the first responders aspect of it and create a news grab that is so thrillingly inspirational mm. that you kind of start to understand how he could how he could be a really um, potent political commodity and operator. I think it's probably the best political documentary I've seen in memory. It's so good. I, I think it it also just gives you a bit of a context into American politics, which is a bit useful at the moment. It was, I, I just, I literally could not stop thinking yeah. about it. I was just yeah. thinking about it. And it was like my brain was, you know, talking about coincidence and trying to make sense of things. It was like I couldn't stop thinking about it because I was trying to make sense of it because there yeah. was so much confounding material yeah. in it. Anyway, it opens, it had a limited opening. It, it was in the Sydney Film Festival and it's having a cinematic release, I think, in like a month or two. So it's keep an eye on it. It's at the Melbourne Film Festival, Film Festival as well, yeah. yeah. And then it's going to be in like small independent. Yeah, so get can look out, Wiener. Keep an eye out for, watch out for Wiener. Watch out for Wiener. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, a we'll. Of Wiener. <laughs> we'll leave it there. See ya. <laughs>